So before the Lord in prayer as we begin. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your church, and we thank you uh, that we can come together as your people to study your word and to worship you this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would work through your word today as we look to it, as we continue to study Colossians and what you inspired Paul to write. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would accomplish what you want to do. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. All right, well, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Colossians 3. That's where we are picking up with our series this morning. Our text is Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. And I'll read that for us here. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. But in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. All right, that's our text that we're going to be dealing with today, but before we, before we do that, I just want to do a little bit of review for you all so you remember the context in which this passage appears. You'll remember that um, last week when we had begun... I had talked about the three-point outline that I've been using for Colossians, just to kind of give us a general picture of how Colossians is structured. And you'll remember, if you were there, and if you remember, that the first point, uh, the first point of the outline for Colossians is Paul's introduction, and then we get into Paul's teaching on the person and the work of Jesus. All right, so if you remember, then particularly in chapter 2, Paul begins to deal with Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, describing Jesus' deity, describing that he made everything and that uh, all things hold together in him and so on. And then he goes into the gospel and Jesus' work of reconciliation and how Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands and he set it aside, nailing it to the cross and all these kinds of things. If you remember us slowly going through Paul's teaching on the gospel, the person and work of Christ. And then last week, we began to move into the third section of Colossians. And that third section is Christian living, or what I'm calling Christian living. And that's Paul describing how Christians are to live in light of believing in the gospel. That is, once we've accepted Christ, and he is our Savior and our Lord, and we are justified how then should we live? Right? That's kind of what the rest of this epistle is all about. 
is describing how Christians ought to live. And last week, Paul began talking about Christian living by describing what we call today the doctrine of Christian liberty. That is that as Christians, we have liberty to either follow or not follow laws of the Old Covenant. And the laws that Paul was talking about last week, particularly, were questions of food and drink, um, you know, eating clean foods or unclean foods, and following the Jewish calendar, and all those kinds of things. He called those shadows, because Jesus fulfilled those laws of the Old Covenant. We don't have to follow the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Booths, and the festivals, and all those kinds of things that God prescribes in the Pentateuch. We don't have to follow the clean and unclean food laws and that sort of thing because those things have been abrogated by Christ because he fulfilled them. Right? And you remember talking about all that kind of stuff last week. That was, that was what Paul was dealing with. Things where we have liberty to follow or not follow if we so choose. We don't have to do them. Let no one judge you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or that sort of thing from chapter 2. Now, that's great and that's important very important for first century Christians to understand what part of the Old Testament is still in effect and what part is not, what part has been fulfilled by Christ and what part is still uh, a part of the church and that sort of thing. That's great questions for first century Christians and great question for us too. But whenever we talk about this doctrine of Christian liberty and whenever Paul talks about Christian liberty and, and that sort of thing, we can sometimes take it too far into what we call today this idea of antinomianism. This is what Paul's going to sort of combat this indirectly today in our text, antinomianism. Anyone know what this means? It's a very fancy theological word. <clears throat> All right, well, I'll tell you. Anti, what does anti mean? Against. Yeah, or against, right? Okay, so we know that part. <clears throat> Nomad. What's that? Nomian. Yeah, nomad. so nomad. the word nomianism here comes from the Greek word namos, which I don't think you know that word, but you do know what this English word means. Law. Right? Namos is the Greek word for law. So antinomianism is essentially anti-lawism. And what antinomianism teaches is that Christians don't have to obey any of the law of God. That is that when Christ came and accomplished forgiveness of sins for us, once we become believers, we don't have to worry about following any of the law of God. And that includes the Ten Commandments. So Christians can murder and steal, they can commit adultery and all these things, and it doesn't matter because we're forgiven. We have grace. And so we can do it all even as Christians. This is kind of what Paul talks about in Romans 6 when he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, he's asking the Romans, he's like, well, just because we're under grace, does that mean that we can then sin as much as we want just because we know God's going to forgive us? No, of course not. As Christians, as people who are living the Christian life, even though we've been forgiven of all of our sin, we still seek to follow Christ. We still seek to obey. That's part of the fruit of the gospel, as Paul teaches in other places. So antinomianism means we don't have to follow the law of God. We don't have to worry about sin. We can just sin up all we want as Christians because it doesn't matter. And that's not biblical, and that's, that's not what Paul wants to teach us here. He's saying we have liberty to follow the Old Testament laws of unclean and clean foods, 
and uh, Jewish calendars and that sort of thing because they've been fulfilled by Christ. We have liberty to follow or not follow in those. But we do not have complete liberty to just go on sinning. Because for Paul, sin is a very serious thing. And in our passage today, he's going to teach us how we mortify sin, as he calls it, or how we put it to death. Okay, so let's see what Paul has to say. There's three points to his text here, which makes a really good Sunday school lesson or sermon when you get three points. It's always nice when the text falls into those categories. So we got three points today. Let's look at the first one here. Uh, Verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, and you remember, that's what believers, that's what has happened to believers, right? We've been raised with Christ by faith. And that's what, as we remember from chapter two, that's what baptism symbolizes, that we've been raised with Christ by the same power that God raised Jesus from the dead So we have been spiritually raised from the dead. We've been made alive, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. So if then you have been raised with Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, Paul says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, there have been some who have uh, slightly misunderstood what Paul is saying here when he says, do not set your mind on things of the world or things earthly. Some have taken that to mean, oh, well, I I shouldn't think about my job or I shouldn't think about the house that I live in or I shouldn't think about money or I shouldn't think about politics because those are all earthly things. I should only think about heavenly things. So I should move to a monastery and spend my whole life studying the scriptures in a little cell. That that is not what Paul is saying here. (laughs) There have been lots of Christians who have taken it that way in history. What Paul means here by earthly things, not setting our mind on earthly things, is he's talking about sinful things. And he actually makes that clear in verse 5, where he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, namely sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, all these kinds of things. And so he, he tells us right there what he means by earthly. He's saying, don't set your mind on sinful things, Set your mind on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Namely, set your mind on heavenly things. Now that sounds nice, right? It makes a good poster to put up in our house. But what does Paul mean by set your mind on heavenly things? What's he talking about there? Well, I think what he's talking about there is the same kind of thing that our shorter catechism describes in question number one anyone know shorter catechism question one i think you know it maybe you've heard it before you might not know it's question one what is it yeah what's the chief end of man in other words what's the purpose of man why does he exist and what is the answer that the catechism gives Yeah, exactly right. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the Shorter Catechism question one. The Shorter Catechism was designed by the Westminster Assembly in the 17th century to be a catechism that parents use to educate their children. That's what the Shorter Catechism is. And notice the very first thing that the Assembly shows parents that ought to uh, teach to their children. That is... What is the purpose of man? What's this chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the essence of what it means to set your mind on heavenly things. To think about what 
to think about what it is that we are supposed to do as God's people. We are to grow in knowledge of Him. That is how we enjoy Him. We get to know Him more. We get to love Him more. And we seek to glorify Him. That's the action part. That's where we're doing things for Him. That's where we're obeying Him. That's where we're sharing the gospel and telling people about Him. We glorify Him and we enjoy Him forever. So when we set our mind on heavenly things, right, what we're saying is the pursuit, the chief pursuit of our Christian life is to know God, to study Him, to learn about Him from His Word, to love Him, to enjoy Him, and then to glorify Him. That's how we're setting our mind on heavenly things. We set our mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And then verse 3, Paul gives a reason. Why are we doing this? Why should we care about setting our mind on these heavenly things? Verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I, like, uh, I really like what Paul says here in verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And maybe maybe in the first glance, as you're sort of looking at that verse, you're thinking, what, what exactly is Paul saying? It's kind of interesting imagery there. I love what Calvin says about this verse in his commentary on Colossians. You know, Calvin has this way of, of um, deciphering Paul and explaining him in such a really easy-to-understand way. That's why I like reading Calvin as I prepare these studies. And Calvin says, with regard to verse 3, essentially... He's like, in the Christian life, there are often times for, you know, for every Christian where we experience, you know, sufferings and, and hardships, you know, and we tend to sometimes question the assurance of our salvation, or we question whether God is really there, or we question whether Jesus really paid the penalty for our sin. There's some times in life where many Christians feel that way. They feel as if their life, their eternal life, is not there. And what Paul is saying here is that, well, no, it actually, even when you don't see it, even when it's hidden, always remember that it is hidden with Christ in God. That is, it's always there even when you can't see it. It may be hidden behind these these troubles or these, these sufferings that you're going through or these doubts or this rough patch of life. Maybe hidden behind that, but it's always there. And it's hidden with Christ in God. Meaning that the foundation for it is always sure, right? Because Christ never loses any sheep. There is no safer place for our eternal life to be than with Christ in God. Because it cannot be changed. It is there forever. And that is a wonderful assurance. Right? And so Paul here, as he's discussing this, he's giving a reason for why we are to set our mind on the things that are above, not on sinful earthly things. It's because we have sure eternal life with Christ in God. It is there it is hidden. We can't see it yet. We know it's coming. We don't know what heaven or the new heavens and new earth are going to be like, but we know it's there. It's a little hidden from us. But that's the reason we're looking forward to it. We're looking forward to that sure eternal life secured for us by Christ and God. 
And because of that, in preparation for that, in seeking that, we set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And then, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He's talking about the second coming of Christ there. He's saying, as long as we are on this earth, looking forward to that eternal life that is hidden from us, but we know it's there, we strive to set our minds on godly things, to study his word, to learn to love him more, to enjoy him. Because that is exactly what we're going to do forever when Christ comes again and we go and be with him in glory for all eternity. That's a good reason to set our minds on godly things, isn't it? That's what we're going to be doing for eternity with him. Okay, so that's Paul's, what we could call his first point. Okay? Um, Seek, so I'm going to run out of room here. Seek (coughs) heavenly things. Okay? That's his first point. Second point is right there at the beginning of verse 5. Right? This is more of the negative aspect. Not negative as in bad, but negative as in the things that we're not to do, right? He's saying, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists a whole bunch of sins. So put, put to death the sin that is in you. And this, you might notice if you're using, uh, like, say, the King James or something else, the terminology might be something like mortify sin. Mortify sin. And I like this word a little better because it's more graphic. But in, in our own modern English, when we think of the word mortify, at least the way that I grew up with it, mortify meant something like a, a bad surprise. You know, I, I heard what she said, and I was mortified. <laughs> right? You probably heard someone say that. Right. What mortified literally means, though, is not like a bad surprise. Mortified means to kill. So you heard something and you were mortified means you heard something and you, you were killed. So it's a pretty, ex, a pretty strong expression. Mortify, therefore, what is earthly in you. Mortify the sin. This is strong language. And, and I think there have been few people in the history of the church. There have been a lot of really bright people, Christian people groups in the history of Christianity. But I think that the the group that really understood how to mortify sin better than any other group as a whole, in in my judgment, has been these people that we call the Puritans. Puritans. You've probably heard of the Puritans before, right? They maybe show up in, like, history classes from way back in high school or something, or maybe you've heard of them mentioned from a pulpit or in a a radio program or a Christian book or something. Uh, The Puritans, for some people... Whenever they hear the term Puritan, they kind of leaves a bad taste in the mouth. You know, some people don't like the Puritans, and for some people, when they say they don't like the Puritans, what they usually have in view is is they think the Puritans were somehow uh, legalists, and they were unhappy people whose goal in life was to remove other people's happiness. That's sometimes the caricature. In fact, that's the caricature of Puritans that I read in a history book in high school. That's kind of how they describe them. Weren't they question? behind the stuff about the scarlet letter? Weren't they? Uh, I'm not familiar the with that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, those, those were the New England. 
Puritans. Yeah, but the, they technically weren't Puritans. Oh, you're talking about the ones. Huh? I'm talking about the ones that are in Puritan. England. Yep, that's right. In the in the uh, England, they really the term Puritan means that they were the ones who wanted to reform or purify the Church of England during the 16th and 17th centuries. And that's why they were called the Puritans. So once they go over to America, they're not really considered Puritans anymore. And there were some some whack jobs there for sure. But uh, we're talking about the good Puritans, right? the ones who were not the legalist, unhappy people. Right? Um, this, some of you know this already, but this past week, I was uh, in Orlando all week taking a class with Sinclair Ferguson at the RTS in Orlando, and that class was on Puritan theology. And it was a fantastic class, learned a lot about the history and the theology of the Puritans. And one of the things I was struck by in Ferguson's um, presentation of the Puritans is that they were passionate about the Christian life. Now, they understood, right? They understood justification by faith alone. They understood predestination and divine election. I mean, the Puritans were the ones who wrote the Westminster Standards. Our Westminster Confession and shorter and larger catechisms were written by the English Puritans. They understood the gospel. Uh, They were gospel-preaching people. But they were very passionate about preaching Christian living, about preaching the mortification of sin, and about preaching obedience in the Christian life. And I love this about them, that they saw the law of God. They saw the law of God as a revelation of the character of God. They saw the law of God as a revelation of the character of God. That is, if we want to know the character of God, we look to his law. And we see, say in the Ten Commandments, which is generally seen as the summary of God's law, we see in that, you shall not murder. Well, why would God care if we murder? Well, it's because he's passionate about life. Why would God care about whether we bear false witness? Well, it's because he's passionate about truth. And see, when you look to the law, you can find out by reading between the lines about the character of God. And that's why the law is so important. And Thomas Goodwin, one of the, a very famous Puritan, uh, you probably never heard of him, that's okay. Uh, Thomas Goodwin said that the law is the image of God's mind really helps us understand the mind of God if we look at what he wants us to do, what he commands us to do. And in the Garden of Eden, the Puritans said, in the Garden of Eden, this comes as a little bit of a shock to some of us, but in the Garden of Eden, obedience to God was the greatest part of Adam's happiness and holiness. Obedience to God was the greatest part of Adam's happiness and holiness. That's a strong statement. Because in our own day, especially as as fire-breathing Protestants, we tend to think of the law as a bad thing. Don't we? We tend to think of the law as a bad thing. We really stress the law's power to convict us of sin. And it does do that. Luther was hard on that, right? That the law of God shows us our sin, shows us how we have failed, shows us how we cannot be righteous before God and that we need the righteousness of Christ and his atonement in order to be saved. And so the law breaks the unbeliever and brings them to the gospel. 
But you know what? In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the law for the believer is supposed to be more than something that just breaks us. The law is supposed to be our delight in many ways. We're supposed to seek to develop in ourselves a love for doing what God commands and mortifying the sin in our lives. Isn't that what Psalm 1 talks about? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. That's the kind of Christian we're supposed to be. Right? We're supposed to be someone, we're supposed to be people who delight in doing what God commands and in mortifying the sin in our life when we don't do what God commands. And the Puritans were very passionate about that because for them, they didn't see obedience to God's law as something that should be burdensome for the Christian. They didn't see obedience to God's law as something like, oh man, we have to do more stuff. No, for the Puritans, they saw the law of God in the Christian life as a privilege. And obedience to that law is something that we should find delight in. We should find delight in doing what God wants us to do. And we should make it the pursuit of our Christian lives to kill the sin in our lives that is keeping us from obedience to God. That's an important part of sanctification. That's, that's what Paul's getting at here when verse 5, when he says, Kill, therefore, what is earthly in you. Kill that sin in you. John Owen, one of the most famous Puritans ever, you maybe have heard of him. John Owen wrote a very famous book called The Mortification of Sin. And I just read that book about a week ago for this Puritan theology class. It was a fantastic book. And Owen talks about this passage of Colossians in that book. And he says, Paul's imagery here of putting to death the sin in you, the sin in us, is very picturesque because what, what Paul does is he doesn't see... In, in his imagery here, he doesn't see sin as a, as a petty annoyance. He doesn't say swat the mosquito of sin in your life or shoo away the fly of mosquito sin in your life. No, he says kill the sin. In other words, sin is portrayed as a ruthless enemy that needs to be annihilated. Kill the sin. Mortify the sin. Put it to death. End it. Right now. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Passion. Evil desire. And covetousness, which is idolatry. This is the Puritan emphasis right here. Put to death the sins. Find it. Search our life. And see if we can see things that are not in accordance with God's law. And kill it. Get rid of it. Stop it. Because verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And here, Paul is now making a transition into, what you say, his, his third point, and that is the new self. And you could, I guess you could call this the new self versus the old self. He's saying, why 
Why are we needing to kill the sin in our life? Here's why. Because you have put off the old self with its practices. And you've put on a new self. In other words, one of the characteristic features of an unbeliever is that they live sinful lifestyles. We get so, I don't know, I get so annoyed when I look at the world around me, the unchristian world, and I see them living licentious lives, and I'm like, ah, oh, they're not following God's law, they're not being obedient to Him, and I'm like, but, but that's what unbelievers do. <laughs> they live sinful lifestyles. Paul says, this is what the Colossians were doing. They were living in sin. They were not obedient to God. In these, you too, verse 7, you too once walked when you were living in them. And all of us, all of us have done this. When you were living in them. But now, you must put them away. Why? Because you put off the old self with its practices and have now put on the new self. And what's characteristic about this new self that Paul's talking about? He says in uh, second half of verse 10, and have put on the new self, comma, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here's what's distinctive about the new self. This new creation we've been made into as believers. This new self is being renewed by God after the, his image. It's being renewed by God after his image. You remember that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, when they were made originally, they were made in the image and likeness of God. Remember that? God made man in his image. And when they fell into sin, they didn't lose the image of God, but the image of God was marred and tainted and infiltrated by <laughs> sin in them. Right? They didn't lose the image, but the image was corrupted. And so part of the task of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification is to renew the image of God in us from a state of corruption to a state of perfection. Now, that state of perfection will never be accomplished in this life, right? It's only going to be accomplished in heaven. We'll never be perfect on earth. But he's at work in us as Christians, in our new self, molding us and renewing us in his image. And Paul says, it's because of that that we need to hear these commands to kill the sin in our life and progressively become more sanctified, become more holy. It's a lifelong pursuit. We will never accomplish all of it, but we are commanded to do it. We are commanded to seek to obey God and kill that sin. Verse, verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul is saying this whole concept of the old self and the new self, of, of, of um, seeking to obey God as believers, is not something that's just for a Jewish person. It's not something that's just for a Greek Christian, or a circumcised Christian, or an uncircumcised Christian, or a barbarian Christian, or a Scythian Christian. That is, barbarians were the, um, the, the uneducated, non-Roman people from the Northwest, 
and the Scythians were the uneducated non-Roman people to the northeast of the Roman Empire. Just background knowledge on that. So they're talking about uneducated people who were viewed as inferior to the Romans. And Paul's saying, if a barbarian became a Christian, if a Scythian became a Christian, if a slave becomes a Christian, if a free man becomes a Christian, doesn't matter. We are all, each and every one of us, called to die to our sin and to live unto righteousness. This is the task of the Christian life. This is what the Puritans stressed so much. And uh, this is not legalism. This is not legalism. Legalism is when we add to the law of God or when we think that following God's law is what saves us. But seeking to obey God is not legalism. That's just the Christian life. I had um, a conversation with someone recently where I was... um, explaining some areas in my life where I, after thinking about this and thinking about the Puritans and reading a lot of their writings in preparation for the class, where I saw some things in my life that were sin that I needed to mortify, that I needed to put to death. And in the last you know, several months, I've seen things sitting under the teaching of various people where I'm like, you know what? I don't think that I'm in accordance with God's law here. I think I need to change that in my life. I need to mortify that. I need to put it to death. And I was explaining some of these things to someone recently, and he was convinced that I was a legalist because I was seeking to obey God. I said, it's not legalism when you seek to obey God if it's in the Word. If God says, do not be sexually promiscuous, it's not legalism to follow that command, right? If God says, do not commit adultery, It is not legalism to follow that command. If God says, do not murder, do not have any other gods before me, do not make a graven image, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, it's not legalism to follow those commands. That is the Christian life. We don't do it because it saves us. I stress this all the time whenever I talk about God's law. It doesn't save us. There's nothing we can do to earn favor with God. Jesus did that for us. But out of a response, a joyful response to the gospel, we do seek to obey God. Just as we sort of finish up here, in the first century, in the first century of Christianity, there were a whole bunch of apologists that rose up. And apologists are people who defend the Christian faith. And the Christian faith needed to be defended at an intellectual level, philosophically and theologically and politically in the Roman Empire. And these Christians rose up to debate with the philosophers and to debate with the politicians to help them understand what Christianity is and why it's legitimately true. And one of the great apologists of the first century of Christians was a guy named Justin Martyr. And yeah, you may recognize the last name Martyr. That's where we get our term Martyr which means someone who died for the Christian faith. And we get that name because Justin Martyr died for his faith. It's one of the first ones that we like know of specifically. And Justin Martyr was a, a very important apologist for early Christianity. And when he came before the Roman Empire, and when he came before these great thinkers, and he was told to give a defense of Christianity... Aside from philosophical arguments, which he used, and aside from arguments from the Old Testament, which he used, Justin Martyr appealed to this. He said, 
Listen, if you don't believe these philosophical and apologetical and theological and scriptural arguments for Christianity, just look at our lives. Look at our lives. We first century Roman Christians drive our chariots within the speed limit. We don't divorce our wives. We don't steal things. We pay our taxes. We tell the truth. All we want to do is practice our unique beliefs. Have the freedom to do that. But we are moral people. We mortify our sin. That's a fantastic testimony to the Christian faith. But you know what's interesting is that if I were a 21st century Christian apologist, I don't think I would use an argument like that. Because by and large, Christians today don't mortify sin. We pretend to swat it away like a fly and say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not going to really change anything because I'm just not going to think about it. Paul's text here is calling us to do something more than just not think about it. It's not calling us to swat a fly. It's It's telling us to search our lives, study the law of God, make sure we're in accordance with it. And if we're not, we need to mortify that sin. Because that's what we need to do as Christians. Now again, we do that always and every way, remembering what the Puritans said. That obedience to the law of God it should not be a chore. We should pray to God that it would be our delight to do his law. That it would be our delight to meditate on it day and night. That it would bring us happiness and holiness to live lives in accordance with what he has taught us to do. Because that is how we obey him in a joyful response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's do that. Let's make the law of God our delight, as the author of Psalm 1 says. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we recognize that it is so easy to be complacent in our study of your word and in our implementation of it into our lives. Lord, we pray this morning that you would guard us against antinomianism, Guard us against this idea that, that obeying you is not important. Lord, we pray also that as we hear a, a lesson like this from your word, that we, you would also guard us against legalism too. Lord, we don't want to add anything to your word. We don't want to add commands. We don't want to, to think that following you is going to save us. No, the only obedience that saves us is the obedience of Jesus transferred to our account. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to find that biblical median between the two, where we seek to obey you out of a joyful response to your gospel. And that that obedience would be motivated by delight for your law. Lord, make us Christians whom Justin Martyr would be proud of. Make us Christians whom you would be proud of. Lord, help us to be a a light in this world and help us, most of all, to be a delight for you as we serve you, as we seek to implement your law into our lives. Help us to mortify the sin, Lord. We know we can't do that by ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit. 
We need your spirit working in us. Lord, please work through your word, through the power of your spirit, and prepare us now to worship and hear the preaching of your word this morning from Pastor Adam. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.